for Hi all, last week when we left you, pro-learner Rudy Schiara, Robert Fairbrothers, and Johnny Rossi had been arrested and hit with both local and ITAR charges pertaining to the murders of Rudy Maffeo and Anthony Malay. Raymond Patriaca, who was already serving time on conspiracy charges in the 1966 murder of Rudy's brother, Willie, was also charged in both state and federal court. But Frank Venditulli and Louis Minacchio slipped away before the feds could scoop them up and were deemed fugitives spawning a nationwide manhunt. We'll come back to Venditulli a little later in the episode. Louis will be the focus next week, but for now, let's talk about our other fleeing wise guys. Well, before we move on to the other Lannisters, let's review what ITAR charges are for, are for our listeners. For those who don't know what ITAR refers to, it's the acronym for the Interstate Transportation in Aid of Racketeering Act, or what's commonly referred to as the Travel Act. President Kennedy signed it into law in 1961 to give the federal government the power to prosecute organized crime that crossed state lines. This was the precursor to the 1970 RICO Act, which would give the feds even more power to go after organized crime. We mentioned in the last two episodes that federal charges could not be brought against Pro, Schiara, Minocchio, and the others in the Maffeo Malay double homicide case if the murderers had not crossed state lines. This is why Jack's testimony that he and Pro ventured down to Rhode Island and Schiara and Minocchio went up to Massachusetts was so crucial. If only locals were responsible for the double homicide, the feds wouldn't have a case and they'd be dead in the water. Glad. Thank you for giving us the explanation of Rico's daddy. Well, it's a good name for the rather uh, <laughs> bland ITAR. <laughs> well, I like it. Okay. There were three others still at large in the summer of 1969 as a result of Jack Kelly's testimony. Phil Cresta, Stephen Raukis, and Carmelo Merlino. If you listen to Jack Goes Bad Part 1, Revenge by Robbery, you might remember the trio was involved in the December 1968 Brinks robbery. The feds were interviewing all of the usual informants in an effort to ascertain their whereabouts. We'll discuss Raukis when we talk about Venditulli a little later. On August 27, 1969, CIBS1159-PC told Special Agent Dennis Condon that Mello would certainly team up with Venditulli and Minocchio now that they were all fugitives. He continued on that a man named Frank Grillo that hung out at Sam Spawn, Harrison Ave in Boston, was in touch with Mello a couple of nights a week. Who was Frank? I have no idea. Okay. <laughs> But can I please tell everyone who Condon's informant was now? Do us the honors. It was Frank Imbruglia. <laughs> well, that explains the scammy parole violation after he gave up Ruiz-Giara. He does go on to become a top echelon informant in the 70s, but we have to wait a little to tell that story. I know, but another one of your favorites was also bu busy feeding fables to the feds. Three months later, Vinnie Teresa told Special Agent Condon that he heard that Butchie Maselli was aiding both Merlino and Menachio. And the gossip-mongering Teresa had to throw in there that Butchie was having marital issues. Well, you always say that these guys sit around sniping like old biddies. Well, they certainly did, and I suspect most wouldn't deny it. Maybe they wouldn't admit their own gossip habits, but certainly wouldn't point the fingers at their compatriots. And the feds relied on those tendencies. But by the spring of 1970, the whereabouts of not just Venditulli, Menacchio, Merlino, Cresta, and Raukas were a mystery to the authorities, but also Stevie Flemmy and Frankie Salemi. And where else would you go to look for vanished gangsters than Maine? 
Well, I always think of Maine as so waspy, but obviously that's wrong. <laughs> well, that's another one of those lies we were told. Anyhow, one of your favorite feds, special, agents, Char special agent Charles A. Rapucci, made his way to York Beach, Maine, to investigate whether or not any of the neighbors of the Vicka family of Rhode Island had seen any of the boys kicking around. Alas, their search was fruitless. Now, Nina, tell us why Stevie and Frankie were on the run. The first indictments to come down were in September of 69. Stevie, Frankie, Peter Poulos, Hugh Sonny Shields, and Robert Dadiego were all charged in the 1967 murder of William Billy Bennett, the brother of Wimpy Bennett. Stevie, Frankie, and Peter were declared fugitives on September 12th. Frankie Salemi later claimed that Sonny Shields was the, was the one who killed Billy Bennett just before Bennett's body fell out of the car. If you want to hear more about that hit, listen to the Bennett Brothers Murders episode. We'll also be covering the murder trial in a future episode. You're more tongue-tied than usually. Uh, I might have to give you crap about that because it's usually me making the flubs. Shields was arrested on September 19th. Poor Richie Grasso was also charged, even though he had been dead for over 18 months at that point. He had been killed a week after Billy Bennett. Daddy Echo was already doing time in Walpole for a bank robbery gone wrong and had decided to turn state's evidence, which appeared to be a thing to do in 1969. And he was the only one left holding the bag. They all wanted to be like Barboza. <laughs> Every time I hear that statement, I cringe. They weren't just becoming informants. They were becoming fiction writers. Aspiring artists, every last one of them, including the feds. Just one month later, on October 10th, the Fitzgerald car bomb indictment came down. Like some 20 plus years later, Stevie and Frankie were nowhere to be found. And just like in more than one of a few of the cases Barboza testified in, Daddy Echo was the only so-called witness who provided statements and testimony to the grand jury. Fugitive warrants were issued for the duo on the same day, and they were moved to the FBI's most wanted list. Well, before we move on to how they became fugitives, I do want to tell this story about Daddy Echo and Slim Skinny Kazamas. <laughs> The never-ending nickname controversy. As I've said in the past, I'll stick with what I heard firsthand, and that's Slim According to Robert, Cazonis came to him because Cazonis had seen him talking to his handlers while they were both locked up in Walpole. Cazonis wanted Robert's help in discrediting, disgracing, or embarrassing Special Agent Rico, and that was a direct quote. <laughs> Cazonis worked for Jerry Angelo and was close to Peter Lamoni, who at the time was on death row for the murder of Teddy Deegan. Cazonis questioned Robert about why the feds were visiting him. Robert claimed that they were questioning him about recent bank robberies in Massachusetts. As far as Cazonis' request, Robert claimed that he didn't give a definitive answer. Hey, you know, Slim or Slim, Skinny, whatever you want to call him, I think he's still alive, you know. Well, we should find him. Yes, I think so. All right. Dadiecko also reported that attorney Ronnie Chisholm paid him a visit for the same purpose. At the time, Ronnie was representing Jerry and Julo in particular in the upcoming VA hospital robbery case. I love the last part of that 302. Quote, copy sent to Mr. Tolson, unquote. Rico was probably getting worried that Richie wasn't going to be able to close on their deal. So he recruited Robert for expert insurance. Well, it's not exactly like dad was reliable. Now let's get into how Frankie and Stevie knew that trouble was on the horizon. I'm sure that many of our listeners know that Frankie Salemi claimed the special agent Rico along with alone with only Gerard Coleman for backup. 
breaking the edict sent down from J. Edgar Hoover himself that Rico was not to meet with his CIs alone, but with three additional agents at all times, met with him and Stevie Flemmy to tell them that indictments were on the horizon. After Rico told them to get out of town, Stevie and Frankie and Peter Poulos took off for Chicago. There, according to Frankie, they caught a flight to Los Angeles. Now, Frankie claims he doesn't remember, but he's pretty sure he never left the airport because he didn't think it was a good idea for all of them to stay together since they were all wanted fugitives. So he got back on a plane and flew to New York City, where he linked up with a man from Providence named Billy Candelmo, who had an apartment near Broadway. Although by the time he brings up the apartment in New York City, it's the summer of 72, about six months before he finally gets pinched, and he'd been on the lam for nearly three years. He says he remembered the address because he could see the sign for Man of La Mancha from his window and the lines of people waiting to get tickets. <laughs> now, maybe he made a mistake about the address, but in the summer of 72, Man of La Mancha was playing at the Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts, which is over a mile away from the address where he claims he was staying. And yes, I looked. The real mistake is that he lied again. I don't think he can help himself. Guess I shouldn't call it a mistake. If you if he read the informant statements in the 302s from late 69 and early 70s, Frankie's stories that he told Congress decades later almost, keyword being almost matched those tales exactly. Even that address in New York City, but not the bit about Man of La Mancha. <laughs> If only he stuck with the 302s instead of ad-libbing, he'd be okay, but he always has to throw in his own crap to make it sound more authentic. Do I get to go on one of my tirades about his testimony about Punchy McLaughlin and Beth Israel Hospital and the rabbi's costumes? No, our listeners have already been subjected to enough of your tirades about the rabbis. There are plenty of other lies for you to scream about. Pick another story. All right, relax, relax. One would assume that John Durham and company provided Frankie with his full file and all of the statements about him prior to his so-called testimony, unredacted, of course. Oh, FYI, Billy Candemo also had a place in Maine, which frankly seems more likely to be where Frankie was hiding for most of that time. Hey, maybe he was down getting sun in Miami with Rico. <laughs> Hey, you know, those later pictures of him with that V-neck and the tan and the face that kind of like had plastic surgery. I swear Mickey Rourke got a hold of one of those pictures and that's what Mickey Rourke ended up mutating himself into it. But it's like some middle-aged, I, I don't know, I can't, never mind. Anyhow. All right. Tell us about where Flemmy and Poulos were while Frankie was supposedly enjoying the sights and sounds of New York City. Or Miami. <laughs> <laughs> Stevie Flemmy was busy murdering Peter Poulos in the Nevada desert. Several of our listeners have asked about Peter, so we're finally getting to him. On October 10th, 1969, Poulos' body was found, but identification wasn't made until January the following year, despite the fact that the fingerprints had been sent to the FBI by the local authorities immediately after they found Peter's body. <sighs> More Fed magic. It took Boston police fingerprint expert Michael Monahan less than three hours to match the prints to Poulos, but months had passed before he was given access to the photocopy of the prints. More Fed magic. <sighs> there was no sign of the $50,000 that Poulos had supposedly fled with. There'll be more about Poulos later in the season, but it's no shocker that the money wasn't found. I wonder what happened to it. I felt well, Stevie needed to pay his therapist. <laughs> 
<laughs> a February news article reported, quote, Fleming was seeing a psychoanalyst regularly three times a week before his hasty departure, unquote. Please, the feds were probably footing that bill. Well, you mean the taxpayers. Speaking of shots at the government, the parting line in that same news piece was great. Quote, since it's apparently so difficult to find them when they're dead, it's probably even harder to locate them alive, unquote. And people say we're snarky. Indeed. But we had training, I guess, from those old articles we read. Mel and Merlino's road trip would come to an end in a parking lot outside of a tavern in Kentucky in October of 1970. Aren't you going to tell the story about how he was caught? No, I'm saving that for the Brinks episode. <sighs> Sorry. Stephen Raukus was finally apprehended in Allentown, Pennsylvania on August 4th, 1971. We'll cover their demise along with the other members of the Brinks crew in a few weeks. Salemi would remain on the lam until December 14th, 1972, when he was arrested in New York City. We'll get into that a little later in the season, along with Didieco's disappearance the following year, which resulted in the Billy Bennett murder charge being dismissed. Phil Cresta would be snatched up in a toy store in Chicago in March of 1974. And of course, we'll be covering how Stevie Fleming, Stevie Fleming magically escaped all of the charges unscathed. Now, we've mentioned Frank Vendatulli several times in several episodes, but have yet to give his background. Go for it. We haven't been able to figure out why Frank was targeted or who fingered him besides Jack. Frank's story is another one of those tragic ones. He was born in 1914, the second son of Michaela Vendatulli and Emilia Cazzoni. Emilia passed away 10 days after Frank's 13th birthday, leaving seven children for her husband Michaela to care for. He soon remarried. In September of 1930, tragedy struck again when Michaela was killed in a car accident while driving home. His car stalled out on the railroad tracks and was struck by an express train. Michaela and his passengers were all thrown from the car and were dead on impact. At the age of 16, Frank was an orphan. But there were plenty of other family members around. Unfortunately, those family members included Frank's second cousins, the Bakaris. I'll quickly remind our listeners that the Bakaris managed to find themselves in the middle of most feuds and other petty criminality in Rhode Island and were related to the Maffeos through multiple marriages. Sarah Bakari had been married to Jackie Nazarian, who had been murdered in 1962. Rudy Schiara was tried for that murder, but the government couldn't get a conviction. For more on that story, check out episode 22 from season one. The Maffeos, Malays, Schiaras, and even Jackie Nazarian were either married to a Bakari and or the victim of them in some way. So what you're trying to say is Frank Vendy was doomed. Well, basically, yes. I'm telling you, it was the Baroni blood. Something went wrong there. <laughs> We should also note that it seems unlikely that any of the Bakaris were made men, and from what we can tell, none of them were informants. In November of 43, Frank Vendy was arrested for passing a bad check. Luckily for him, his maternal grandfather bailed him out. He pleaded NOLO, and the sentencing kept getting postponed. My favorite Frank story is when he and the daughter of the chief of police of Seekonk were arrested in 1949 for trying to defraud the Narragansett racetrack by defacing a betting ticket in order to collect the winnings. He even had the ink and the stamps and all that other paraphernalia in his car with him when they arrested him. <laughs> well, it didn't go so well for him. Frank was charged with conspiracy to defraud the racetrack by selling those fake tickets. He was already out on parole and charges of auto theft. 
Rhode Island got him first, and he served about 15 months in state prison. His second cousin, Joe Buffy Bakari, was locked up with him on separate charges. Rudy Maffeo and his brother, Freddie, who was married to Buffy's sister, were also there. A regular family affair. It's New England. It's normal. Come on. All right. Fast forward 20 years. In May 1969, Frank was indicted on charges relating to receiving and concealing cars stolen outside of the state. Speaking of cars, according to Imbruglia, Frank and Steve Raukus were partners in crime in, and in the car business. Imbruglia also claimed that the pair spent a considerable amount of time with Ronaldo D. Pay Antrantonio of Connecticut, a bookie named Pickles, also from Connecticut, and a cousin of Henry Cipriano. But who were they? <laughs> I have no idea who D.P. Antonio was, and there was no way that I could figure out who Pickles was. There was too many Pickles. But Henry was one of the many on Rhode Island State Police Colonel Stone's list of usual suspects. It seemed he had a reputation for being a good thief. You know, we haven't done Colonel Stone yet. We'll have to somehow squeeze him in somewhere in this uh, season. Oh, Definitely. Okay, back to Frank. In late July of 69, Frank was stopped for speeding on Route 301 in the state of Georgia. He was scheduled to appear in local court the following week, but of course he never showed and forfeited the $25 bond. And then the following month, he found himself charged with the murders of Rudy Maffeo and Anthony Millay. Frank took it on the lam like Louis Minocchio. The feds began interviewing his family members and friends. Frank's son Thomas said, quote, my father is more or less a drifter and a hustler who has very little concern about his family, but thinks mostly of himself, unquote. In their hunt for Vendy, the feds raided Al Jamil's, uh, Jamil's, such a hard name, dilapidated house in Bristol, Rhode Island, where they found ammo, tear gas, mace, 37 reels of obscene movies, <laughs> and a 99 millimeter Browning automatic pistol, but no sign of Frank. The search for Vendy took the feds all the way to the Caribbean where they found a man named Billy Dale, whose stepson was supposedly involved in building a private club named Xanadu in the Bahamas. The authorities thought Dale and Vendy were one and the same. The kicker was that Frank Sinatra was said to have been an investor. Well, when the fingerprint results came back, they realized that Dale was just Dale. And like most of the other ventures, the club turned out to be a scam. Shocker. <laughs> The feds interviewed Al Jamil for a second time on October 30th, 1969. He told the same story about Ronaldo de Peter Antonio, a.k.a. Connecticut Pete, and Vendi being close. He promised to contact them if he learned of Vendi's whereabouts. The following month, Jamil told the feds that he had contacted Connecticut Pete and arranged to meet him the following weekend. He said he'd inquire about Vendi's whereabouts. That same month, Frank contacted his wife about getting divorced. Well, you left out that he married the chief of police's daughter that he was pinched with back in the 40s. Shame on me for leaving out that little tidbit. Ina was his third wife, I think. I'm still trying to entangle it. Frank continued to contact Ina and his other ex-wife, Peggy, usually about money, throughout his journeys along the East Coast in a 1970 two-tone cutlass bearing New York planes. Ay, ay, ay. The divorce sat a wait as Frank remained a fugitive until July 23rd, 1971, when he was arrested at a Dunkin' Donuts in South Portland, Maine, by FBI Special Agent Guy Bailey. Bailey approached Frank while they were both standing at the counter waiting for their coffee. Quote, you're Frank Venditulli, aren't you? End quote, asked Bailey. And Frank replied, yes. And with that, he was cuffed and taken away. A Dunkin' Donuts for New England. <laughs> and Maine, and Maine. <laughs> 
<laughs> You'll have to wait until we cover the Maffeo Malay murder trial in episode five for the rest of that story. That's going to be a good one, actually. Next week, we'll be focusing on Louis Minocchio's time on the lam, including all of the locations he supposedly had been spotted in. Hence the title, Where in the World is Louis Minocchio? <laughs> Thanks, everyone, for your reviews and your feedback. And for the new YouTube subscribers, but we still need more, please. Remember, Laura is making slideshows for each new episode that you can see on YouTube. And, of course, spread the word. Bye. Bye.